Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting abandoned and defunct theme parks in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, literally nothing but a constant rise and fall. Today I'm going to tell you the story of a classic theme park ride, the very first Ferris wheel. How's it going, theme park aficionados? Life is a lot right now, for me, and I'm sure for you, and basically for everyone else in the whole wide world. Let's distract ourselves from it as best as we can. Today I'm going to go narrow, and I'm going to tell you the story of a single ride. A beginning and an end. An up and a down, an around and around. So instead of talking about a theme park meeting its tragic end, that's too depressing for right now. Let's talk about that beginning. Let's talk about the first Ferris wheel. 231 years ago, a French mob stormed the Bastille Saint Antoine in Paris, France. This was the flashpoint beginning the French Revolution marking a period of extreme social and political upheaval in France over the course of 10 years. Now, the French Revolution accelerated the rise of modern republics and democracies and is widely considered one of the more significant events in all of human history. 131 years ago, the Exposition Universelle of 1889 was held in Paris, France to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. This was a classic World's Fair. As I talked about last time during my Carousel Number 15 episode, a World's Fair is actually kind of a generic term used to describe an event where many nations come together to showcase achievements, technology, products, etc. Consensus is that the first World's Fair was held in 1851 in London, an idea of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband. It was called Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, and it was based on an already extant French tradition that actually dated back to 1798, titled Exhibition of Products of French Industry. Now, Wikipedia tells me that there have been three periods of World's Fairs so far. We've got industrialization, which was from the beginning through 1938, where the fair focused on trade, technological advances, and inventions. Then there was the period of cultural exchange, 1939 to 1987, where the fair roughly focused primarily on social and cultural themes like building the world of tomorrow and peace through understanding. Finally, we're in the current phase of World's Fairs, Nation branding, where the fair focuses on basically improving the images of each nation almost in an advertising campaign. The 1889 Exposition Universelle then was about industry, trade, technology, and inventions. Of course, the last might strike a chord with you, for an invention is really the reason we're bringing up this particular World's Fair at all. Now, in interesting trivial tidbit time, apparently all of the European countries with monarchies 
officially boycotted the fair because it was celebrating the anniversary of the French Revolution, otherwise known as the overthrowing of the French monarchy. Despite being officially boycotted, however, the manufacturers from these companies still wanted to participate, and they basically were sponsored by private industry in order to allow them to do so. The exposition was filled with exhibits of science and technology, many located within the massive gallery of machines. This was a building with the longest interior space in the world at that time. There were showcases of improvements in telephones, phonographs, maritime navigation, military technology, and the elevator, which was this great new invention at that time with miraculous new safety brakes from the American Otis Elevator Company. There was the Palace of Fine Arts, the fountains in the various side streets designed to look like places around the globe. There was good food. There were hydrogen balloons in which the spectators could view the fair from on high. There was a train. Choo-choo, abandoned train fans. This one was called the Decaville Railway, and it utilized actually many different narrow-gauge steam locomotives over its short six-month run. But... All of this stood in the shadows, literally, of the spectacle of the 1889 exhibition. The centerpiece for the exhibition was to be simply a 300-meter tower. At the time, tall buildings were really reserved only for religious buildings. It took a lot of effort back in the day to do this. And these kind of buildings, the religious buildings at the time, were half the height of this proposed tower. The Notre Dame Cathedral, with its 40-meter-high spire, for instance, claimed a total height of only 151 meters. It was really the mastery of this new concept, the mastery of iron, that allowed something twice this height to even be considered. The man to do it was Gustave Eiffel, born in 1832. He made a name for himself in France, building highly regarded bridges and aqueducts across the country. He firmly established himself with his successful building of several of the 1878 exposition buildings. And, of course, you might not know, but he was responsible for the metal interior of the Statue of Liberty in 1881. Now, of course, it's beyond the scope of the story, as I like to say, but it's worth looking into if you have time. There's an incredible amount of engineering that went into the structure of the Statue of Liberty. It's one of the earliest examples of something called curtain wall construction, and it's far more than just a basic statue, which I really had no concept of until I started researching for this story. By 1884, three-minute Eiffel's company had come up with a design for a novel tall tower. This was inspired by something from a previous World Fair, the 96-meter-tall Lassing Observatory, built for the 1853 New York Exposition. Eiffel bought the rights to patent the design from his workers, and then he began to promote the design of this tower in engineering circles. In 1886, two years later, a competition was finally formally announced for the centerpiece of the forthcoming fair, but it was basically written in such a way to make the choice of Eiffel's design the foregone conclusion. They wanted a 300-meter-tall, four-sided metal tower that's pretty specific, and it basically sounds like the Eiffel Tower. That's because they wrote the competition with Eiffel's tower already in mind. 
Construction began in 1887. Surprising to me, all of the tower's 18,037 individual parts were prefabricated at the factory, but then assembled on site. Eiffel's Tower was actually roundly critiqued at the time as it was built because people thought it was either not a feasible project or people thought it was just going to be ugly, an eyesore, a blight on the Parisian landscape. By March of 1889, the structure was complete, and it sounds like critics quickly changed their tune as the popularity of the structure quickly became apparent. In the short period when the tower was open to the public, but before the internal elevators were operational, over 30,000 people climbed up the twisting stairs to the top. That's a huge number of people to climb all that way to the top, and it really demonstrates how popular the tower was. In terms of ricky-ticky details, we could get into a lot of them. The Eiffel Tower is said to be the most visited paid tourist attraction in the world in the modern era. Um, It's 1,063 feet tall, roughly 81 stories, and it was the first man-made structure to pass 300 meters. The Eiffel Tower was stunning for every visitor to the 1889 exposition, and it was incredible advertising for the exposition and for Paris in general. Now, you might be saying, why am I telling you about the Eiffel Tower instead of the Ferris wheel? The reason we must care about the Eiffel Tower in this context is because of how inspirational it was. Without the idea of the Eiffel Tower and how breathtaking it was for the 1889 exposition, we would never have had the subsequent idea of the Ferris wheel, this thing to try and top the Eiffel Tower. Because, as we always know, there was a guy. He wanted to out Eiffel Eiffel. Now, his name was a real mouthful. George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., He was an American, born in Illinois, and he was the guy who invented the Ferris wheel. Now, we're going to call him George Ferris because I'm neither going to say nor type his entire name the many, many times I'm going to repeat it for the rest of this podcast. He was 32 years old when he came up with the idea for the Ferris wheel uh, to really make you feel terrible about your personal accomplishments right now. He was a very nice-looking guy for his time, especially he had very slicked-back hair and a truly spectacular droopy mustache, perfect for his time. Prior to building one of the most iconic rides and structures ever, Ferris was basically your typical 19th-century guy. He went to military school, he went to college for engineering, he was in a frat, and then he started his own company because there were no podcasts for white guys to start back then. Ferris's company inspected metals in bridges, so at least tangentially, he was very well positioned for his big breakthrough. He also designed and built those bridges. From here, we get to 1893. 1893 was the biggest World's Fair held to date at that point. It was designed to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the famous voyage of Christopher Columbus. The primary director of works for the Columbian Exposition, Columbus, Columbian, was Daniel Burnham, an architect known for many famous and normal skyscrapers and shopping centers, including New York's Flatiron Building. 
He took primary charge of the fair's development after his business partner died early in the planning process. Much of the success of the fair is attributed to Burnham's action and effort alone. The fair was to be held in Chicago, and the Americans desperately wanted to surpass the Eiffel Tower. That was so a few years ago, after all. And the Eiffel Tower, long after the World's Fair, was still the star of the global tourism scene. In 1891, Burnham and his team announced a challenge for American engineers. The challenge was to come up with something which would surpass the Eiffel Tower. The directive was, quote, make no little plans, end quote. They wanted something original, something daring, and something unique, something that would blow the socks off the Eiffel Tower. As they were drawing the map for the exhibition, a space was left blank in the map for the exclamation point of the exhibition. Ferris, our friend with the very long name, took to the drawing board. Or, well, he took to the paper napkin that accompanied a meal at a steakhouse. In a newspaper interview, he's quoted as saying, quote, Before the dinner was over, I had sketched out almost the entire detail, and my plan has never varied an item from that day. End quote. He had an idea for a wheel that would take guests spinning higher than even the Statue of Liberty. A Ferris wheel, in general concept wasn't new, however. The thing is, Ferris copied the idea of the Ferris wheel from someone else. Ferris was just the guy who made the wheel famous. Now, with our entire world in lockdown, I don't have a copy of the book that I really need to do this topic justice. It's called Ferris Wheels and Illustrated History by a guy named Norman Anderson. So, I have to admit, I'm going to have to make do with digital-only references, but I will tell you that that book appears to be the really top-notch book on the subject. So if you're interested in Ferris wheels, you probably even already have that book. But if you're interested, check it out. So it seems that Ferris wheels, in fact, go back hundreds of years before even Mr. George Ferris. The earliest wheels were apparently in Bulgaria in the early 17th century, and they were hand-turned by very strong men while guests rode around them. Similar contraptions existed in many different countries, in fact. And the connection to the U.S. was said to have been a Frenchman named Antonio Manguino, who built a pleasure wheel for his fair in the little town of Walton Springs, Georgia. From here, the wheel caught the eye of a man named William Summers. And for rides with names like Epicycloidal Diversion and the Cycloidal Chariot, why wouldn't they? Now, there are at least two patents for Ferris wheel-type devices prior to Summers' Ferris wheel, but William Summers was the first American to patent a Ferris wheel-type design, sometimes called vertical swings or roundabouts. Summers' first wheel was built in 1891 in Atlantic City, two years prior to his groundbreaking patent. It was called the Observational Roundabout, and it towered over the boardwalk. People loved it. Think of how impressive it must have been for people who had never been near a skyscraper before and who never would be, frankly, for them to be able to get into this wheel and look down on the world. That's tremendous. Now, 
Unfortunately, at this time, things were all built out of nice, solid wood. And the thing about things that are made out of wood is that they're very flammable. In June of 1892, the wheel caught fire when a gasoline lamp exploded. Summers wasn't phased by this. He quickly rebuilt an even better double wheel there in Atlantic City, and then built another at Asbury Park in New Jersey, and then another at a little place called Coney Island in New York. These observational roundabout wheels were unsurprisingly immensely popular, despite their flammability and their incredible noise. Being steam-powered, Summers' wheels actually spewed smoke, and they were said to be as loud as a locomotive. Despite this, however, they continued to be popular, and it's said that George Ferris rode the Atlantic City Summers' wheel. And a short time after his ride, Ferris came up with the idea for the Ferris wheel. Ferris's idea for the Columbian Exposition that he soon came up with was a great wheel. Yes, it was an observational roundabout, but on a massive scale. Unfortunately, however, the directors for the exposition were not immediately convinced, reportedly fearing that it would topple over in the middle of the park right on top of the guests. Director Burnham took one look at the slender spokes of the wheel and pronounced the whole thing as, quote-unquote, too fragile. Additionally, the country was actually in the middle of a severe financial depression, with 25 to 40 percent unemployment, depending on the city. So financing for such a large, frivolous product was actually not the easiest to come by. Ultimately, however, Ferris made it clear that he would be able to secure funding, and the directors relented, putting their faith in Ferris and his network of connections. He began construction on the massive wheel right away. And massive it was. Some statistics. Ferris's Great Chicago Wheel was 250 feet in diameter. It had an 89,000-pound axle that was 45 feet long. It carried 36 cars and over 2,000 people could ride it at once. When the directors finally gave Ferris the green light, it was the middle of winter, and Ferris was already under a tight deadline, made even worse by the weather. It was the middle of one of the most severe winters Chicago had experienced in years. The ground there in Chicago was already frozen, something like three feet deep. And underneath that were another 20 feet of slushy, quicksand-like sand, adding yet another dilemma to be solved through manufacturing. And there was the timeline. The fair was going to open in four months. Engineers used our good friend Dynamite to begin the excavation. Pumps were running constantly, hot steam was piped in to thaw the frozen sand, and to keep the newly poured concrete from freezing before it set. By March 20th, 1893, the massive 89,000-pound axle, six times larger than was strictly necessary, was hoisted 140 feet up in the air to its resting place. The wheel was nowhere near complete, but it was started. The power plant which drove the wheel was located 700 feet away from the wheel itself in order to help keep the noise down. And the steam then to power the wheel's engine was carried through big long pipes to the wheel. For the wheel, there were many parts to be added before the big wheel would be anywhere near recognizable, and time was ticking. 
1893 Columbian Exhibition opened to the public on May 1st. With Ferris wheel very much incomplete, steelworkers barely paused atop the growing structure in order to watch the influx of new crowds. Parts were manufactured all over the country in all the big manufacturing cities, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Cleveland, and so forth. But it wasn't until June that the structure was fully assembled. On the evening of June 9th, the Great Chicago Wheel was turned on for the first time. It's said that the wheel moved only with the soft clink of metal upon metal, nearly silent in the 20 minutes it took to make a full revolution. The sight of this great wheel finally slowly moving on a warm early summer's evening, it, it must have really been something else for the patrons of the World's Fair and for the locals. 264 feet up in the air, nearly the height of the Statue of Liberty. Despite the notion that Ferris had liberated the idea of the wheel from Summers, there was actually very little similarity between Summers's angular wheel design and Ferris's sleek, circular, bicycle-like wheel design. But it was incredibly popular, and you have to think, how cool must this have been to see slowly turning in the air way back at the turn of the century? Ferris, of course, was ecstatic about the successful test of his little invention. And he immediately ordered that the cars were put on, because, of course, this test was done without the cars. Now, when we think of modern Ferris wheel cars, we might think of, you know, little things like two to five people in the car, maybe 10, maybe 20. But the Ferris wheel, the original Ferris wheel, huge. The cars were like buses holding upwards of 60 people each. Inside, there were 40 chairs plus standing room. There were plate glass windows. There was steel mesh on the doors. There were firefighting equipment, just in case. And there was a personal conductor stationed in each car. Between June 10th and June 13th, the majority of the cars were attached to the wheel. On June 11th, with only six cars attached, director Daniel Burnham and Ferris's wife, Margaret, took a ceremonial ride on the wheel to mark its opening. By June 21st, all 36 cars were on. And therefore, on June 21st, 1893, with the Columbian Exposition already open for seven weeks, the Ferris wheel was given its grand opening. There were speeches galore, the band played, and a golden whistle marked the official opening of this giant wheel. It had to have been an incredible experience. As I noted earlier, the cars were gigantic. They were more like buses than just simple cars. You could board the wheel at one of six different platforms. The ride consisted of a single revolution with six stops for loading and unloading. Then came nine minutes of non-stop revolution. And it was completely earth-shattering. Guests could see incredible distances. They could see further than they'd ever seen before. On cloudier dark days, Edison's fancy new electric light bulbs kept the wheel illuminated in cheerful patterns. And guests all over the city could see the wheel from quite far away. And beyond this, millions of people rode the wheel. 
During the roughly six months in operation, approximately 1.5 million people rode the Ferris wheel, simply enjoying the novelty of the amusement park ride, so very high up in the air. It actually cost the same amount of money to ride the Ferris wheel as it did to even enter the expo. Famous people rode the wheel too, even our fierce friend Helen Keller, who wrote to a friend of her experience at the fair, saying, quote, I saw a great many of the most wonderful and interesting things at the fair. Of course I rode in the Ferris wheel. Just think of being swung 250 feet up in the air. End quote. The Columbian Exposition closed after six months of operation on November 1st, 1893. The Great Ferris Wheel had a perfect safety and mechanical record during this time, despite gale force winds, storms, and lightning strikes. And not only that, it reportedly made approximately $400,000 net profit. Ferris had high hopes for the future of his wheel. Unfortunately, weather continued to not be on his side. There was another Chicago winter coming on. The wheel stood there silent and shuttered until the end of April 1894, after the thaws had begun. From there, it took 18 days and almost $15,000 to disassemble the wheel. The pieces were kept in flat cars off a Chicago railroad siding. Interestingly, I actually read that some of the original concrete foundation for the original location of the Ferris wheel was still present in Chicago as late as 2015, according to a Hyde Park History article. However, it was another year before the company found a new home for the disassembled giant wheel. They began reassembling the wheel in July of 1895, adjacent to Lincoln Park, some 11 miles away from the expo site on the other side of Chicago's city center. By October of 1895, the wheel was once again open to guests. The directors of the new company had grand plans for the new site. It was about 20 minutes at the time away from major railway stations, major area hotels, and the directors apparently began selling bonds in an attempt to finance additional development. Things like painting the wheel, painting the cars, landscaping the area, adding a bandstand and restaurant, etc. One contemporaneous article did describe this location as, quote-unquote, an amusement park at North Clark Street and Wrightwood Avenue. I was all set to tell you that I couldn't find any information on this, but actually Google found some information pretty quick. It was actually called Ferris Wheel Park. Now, this is a name we might think is pretty generic today, but back then it was pretty unique and groundbreaking. Now, of course, what was it was the 1890s. What was Ferris Wheel Park? Ferris Wheel Park was a trolley park. It was the end of the line for the nearby streetcars. Ferris had partnered with a man named Charles Tyson Yerkes, Charles Tyson Yerkes Jr., who owned the Chicago Electric Street Railway. And unfortunately, it seems as though the site of this trolley park was really poorly chosen. See, it was in the middle of a residential neighborhood, by some accounts a wealthy neighborhood, and this particular neighborhood wasn't exactly fond of the idea of having an amusement park nearby, nor were they big fans of that streetcar owner that Ferris had partnered with. Legal battles held up the project, 
and community votes banned the sale of alcohol nearby, dooming one of the major sources of revenue in that proposed beer garden. And at the same time, we have the legal side of things. That guy, William Summers, he actually sued George Ferris for copyright infringement. The legal suit went on for several years. Similarly, Ferris sued, or discussed suing, it's not entirely clear, the directors of the Columbian Exposition, saying that they'd robbed him of his own share of the profits for the fair. And on a personal level, Ferris's wife left him in 1896. Ferris was said to be hugely depressed as a result, and his life basically really quickly went downhill. It's said that he caught typhoid fever and died alone in November of 1896, penniless and bankrupt, effectively ending all of his legal battles. Well, most of them. Apparently, the story goes that his ashes actually stayed in the care of a local funeral director for more than a year because none of his friends or family wanted to pay the money for his ashes or a funeral. By 1900, the small Ferris Wheel Park had to file for bankruptcy, now under the ownership of the unpopular Yerkes Jr. Vocal opposition from the community meant that patrons never turned up to the park in the numbers needed to make it a success. The wheel actually continued to operate as it went through several rounds of receivership. At one point, local William Boyce, who later founded the Boy Scouts of America, filed a lawsuit against the wheel and its company. And I'll include a link right here in the show notes, to a page that actually goes into detail of all the various lawsuits involved with this version of the park, including um, screenshots of original newspaper articles. The wheel then, it lingered there at Ferris Wheel Park with its charming castle facade entrance as Yerkes Jr. tried to wrest control from the locals one way or another. But ultimately, it was put up for sale. Now, an interesting sidebar here is that during its time at this location in Chicago, the very famous Lumiere brothers, the guys who were basically groundbreaking filmmakers responsible for the first motion pictures, took some footage of Chicago, including the Ferris wheel. And their film here in 1896 is actually public domain, and you can watch it for free on YouTube and uh, Wikipedia and so forth. In July of 1903, the Chicago Tribune wrote a story about our friend, the old wheel. The headline was, Ferris Wheel Lives Anew. The subtitle was, Though Sold as Junk, It Will Revolve Again. See, the wheel was doing worse and worse and worse. By 1903, the company was said to be over $400,000 in debt. All those lawsuits and not enough visitors from a very hostile neighborhood. I really liked this quote from that 1903 Chicago Tribune article. Quote, Once the incarnation of a wondrous feat of engineering, the old World's Fair relic now seems to be inevitably approaching the final dissolution which has threatened it periodically for 10 years. A wrecking company has agreed to remove the structure. Immediately? Not then in five months. Sentimental persons who would drop a tear for the passing of the wheel, and other citizens who have procrastinated the adventure of a run about its axle, may take heart. 
it is understood that rural excursionists in search of thrills may still be accommodated if they can guarantee 30 cents in receipts and wait for the engineer to get up steam. End quote. The wheel, see, was sold at auction for a junk price, $1,800. Remember, it made over $400,000 in net profit back in the World's Fair days. But that was a long time ago. A wrecking company bought it, but it still had one more life left in it. Despite that $1,800 price tag, it's actually said to have taken over $150,000 to move the wheel in pieces in 178 freight cars down to its final home. By July of 1904, the wheel was once again turning. And you know what? It was at a World's Fair yet again. This time it was at the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition down in St. Louis, Missouri. The theme for this fair was another celebration, nominally for the centennial of the 1803 Louisiana Purchase. It was located on the present-day grounds of Forest Park near the St. Louis Zoo and the St. Louis Art Museum. And in fact, the St. Louis Art Museum is one of the original buildings from the fair, the former Palace of Fine Arts. This fair was actually built to a much larger scale than Chicago's Columbian Exposition, but the Great Wheel still stood out. It's said that the wheel recouped its moving costs handily in less than four months. People loved the wheel once again. There were over 50 weddings performed on the wheel, and reportedly there was enough of a market that they actually had a permanently installed piano in one car for the express purposes of ceremonies. One daredevil named Maude Nicholson actually rode on top of one of the cars as the wheel revolved, on the outside of the top of the car. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition ran until December of 1904, and then there were some decisions to be made. After the exposition, it's said that there was some talk of moving the Ferris wheel to Coney Island in New York. After all, a huge wheel, a huge amusement area, and the wheel had already demonstrated that it could easily be moved. However, that move ultimately never occurred. It was determined that it would simply be too expensive to move the wheel all the way to New York. At Coney Island, they would just build another one. And so, the Chicago wheel, the Great Wheel, the Ferris wheel, needed to come down. It was now destined solely for the scrap heap and the metal shop. It was too expensive to run. It couldn't stay there, but it had no other home to go to. From a 1906 Chicago Tribune article titled, Ferris wheel is blown up, we have a blow-by-blow account. Quote, It required 200 pounds of dynamite to put it out of business. The first charge wrecked its foundation and the wheel dropped to the ground. As it settled, it slowly turned, and then after tottering a moment like a huge giant in distress, it collapsed slowly. It did not fall to one side as the wreckers had planned. It merely crumpled up, slowly. Within a few moments, within a few minutes, it was a tangled mass of steel and iron, 30 or 40 feet high. The huge axle, weighing 45 tons, dropped slowly, with the remnants of the wheel crushing the smaller braces and steel framework. End quote. Of course, all the pieces were destined to be reused, destined for the scrap heap and the landfill in the metal shop. But for many years, the whereabouts of the huge axle was actually unknown. Did they chop it into pieces? 
unlikely. It was simply too big. Remember that this was actually the largest single piece of forged steel at the time. Did they drag it to the river and submerge it in the lake? Maybe. Did they just bury it? Maybe. There are really two sets of rumors after this point. One story says that the giant axle was put on a train back to Chicago, where it was taken to a scrap shop there and cut into tiny pieces, where it couldn't have been done in the field. However, the other story that is actually backed up with evidence is that the axle was buried in place or buried in a nearby landfill. In 2007, a man named Sheldon Briner decided to put it to the test, and he was building on an earlier 1996 study that was just looking for the former Ferris wheel base. Both of these studies used the power of magnets. Briner used a cesium magnometer and simply walked around St. Louis, scanning for anomalies in the ground. Being made of steel and therefore permanently magnetized and likely being in one very large piece, the axle was supposed to register even from just a crude search of a person walking around. And it actually did, in the middle of a modern-day road roughly 200 feet south of where the wheel once stood, Briner noted the presence of a 45-foot anomaly, which would correspond exactly to that gigantic hunk of steel that was once an axle. Though Ferris personally met a disappointing end, his legacy is incredible. Literally everyone in the world knows what a Ferris wheel is, and they stand across the globe as a testament to his attitude in pursuing and expanding onto ideas that he thought were valuable. In a eulogy, his former business partners wrote of Ferris, saying, quote, He was always bright, hopeful, and full of anticipation of good results from all the ventures he had on hand. These feelings he could always impart to whomever he addressed in a most wonderful degree— and therein lay the keynote of his success. In most darkened and troubled times, he was ever looking for the sunshine soon to come. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, where I told you about the story of the first Ferris wheel. There are a few great books on Ferris wheels and a few interesting mini-documentaries on YouTube, so check out my reference links in my show notes at theabandonedcarousel.com for more information on the subject. The articles about the wheel linked in the references in the show notes at the Digital Research Library of Illinois History Journal in particular are full of excellent and unique photos, which I encourage you to look at. Now, broadly speaking, I know it's a time of uncertainty right now, to say the least. Even if you're healthy and stable, everything is hard. Do you find things harder to focus on? I do. The research for this episode took twice as long as usual. If you are listening to this, please know that I am wishing you continued good health and happiness. Remember, too, that although things might be scary, take time to enjoy yourself even in the smallest way. Be kind to yourself, follow your health guidelines, and take it easy. With regard to the podcast, I'll be back as soon as I can with another great episode for you. In the meantime, check out the back catalog in your favorite podcast app or at my website, theabandoncarousel.com. Remember, too, what Lucy Maud Montgomery said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. <laughs>